I'm Jordan Montgomery. Welcome to the Montgomery Companies Podcast. Our listeners are in for a treat today. We were joined by Liz Bohannon, who is a best-selling author, a Forbes Top 20 speaker, and an international CEO. She unpacks the four stages of learning. She talks about channeling our inner beginner and challenges the narrative on what it looks like to step out, create change, and live a life of purpose. We are honored today to have Liz Bohannon on the Montgomery Companies podcast. Liz is an author, a CEO of an international fashion company, a Forbes top 20 speaker, and was recently voted one of the top speakers at the 2019 Global Leadership Summit. Her story has been featured in Vogue, LA Times, The Huffington Post, and Fitness Magazine, among other major publications. Her recent book, Beginner's Pluck, has also become a national bestseller. Recently, she was voted by Bloomberg as one of the top social entrepreneurs to watch. Most impressive to me is that Liz is doing incredible, life-changing work that is creating significant and positive impact literally around the globe. Liz, I love your spirit. I love what you stand for. And we are most honored that you are spending time with us today. So thanks for joining us. So grateful to be here, Jordan. Uh, we, have, um, we have long awaited uh, to have you on our show. And um, I think you know this, but you were going to be a, a keynote speaker at our annual summit event. And so COVID-19 changed those plans. But the next best thing is to get you on our podcast. So we're, we're just really honored to spend some time with you. Can't wait to chat. I'm really looking forward to it. So tell us a little bit about your, your background. You, you went from a you know, journalism student in Missouri to a nationally recognized, you know, speaker, author, and CEO. Tell us how that happened. Yeah. So I studied journalism, as you mentioned, uh, during undergrad, and then actually went on to get my grad degree from the University of Missouri Journalism School. And, you know, I kind of had these big aspirations when I was in university. If you would have asked me what I was passionate about, I would have told you that I was passionate about women and girls living in extreme poverty and gender inequality and how extreme poverty and violence and war and negatively and disproportionately affects women and girls across the globe. Um, and I thought, you know, I'll be a journalist and I'll travel around the world and I'll, I'll use my communication skills to kind of share these stories to make a positive impact. Well, I graduated from school and kind of, you know, was out there looking for my dream job, if you will, thinking like, oh, surely, you know, I'll be Nick Kristoff's little sidekick and I'll <laughs> travel the world and the New York Times will love to hire me. Okay. Well, New York Times is not interested <laughs> in hiring a recent journalism school graduate who has no real life experience. And so, but you know, I was like graduating in the real world. I had to like get a job and pay bills and do the thing. And so I took the best job offer that I had and it was at a corporate communications firm actually back in my hometown wasn't particularly thrilling to me, but I did it. And I'm about, I don't know, maybe like three months into the job. And I have this, like, I've got these like big ideas of like, someday I'll be able to make an impact, right? Like someday when I've worked my way up here in my current career trajectory, someday when I have more resources, when I have more expertise, like someday all of this will matter and I'll get to do something that, that creates a positive impact in the world. And just a few months in 
to this job, I had this moment where I'm sitting at my desk and I'm doing research for a client. And by the way, like every client that I'm working with, I'm just trying to like get them to be excited about what I'm excited about, which is women and girls and developing economies and, you know, gender equality. Um, and so I'm doing research for a client and I just have this moment. It's kind of one of those come to Jesus moments where I was just like, you know what, um, I say I really care about this thing and I say I'm really passionate about it and I sure do have a lot of information about it. You know, I've taken classes, I've written papers, I, I know tons of statistics and I had this moment where I realized, but despite all of that, you don't actually know a single girl who grew up in a developing economy. Like you're not actually friends. You don't really have a relationship with your community that you're building and the life that you're building is completely untouched by the realities that you say you actually care about. And that once I kind of thought that thought, once it was thunk, if you will, I knew I couldn't go back. And so in that moment, I was like, okay, you kind of have a decision to make. Like now that you know that, now that you've thought that thought, you can, you can keep going um, or you can try to change that. You can kind of try to close the delta between what you say you care about and in your actual life. And so um, I quit my job, put in my notice, bought a one-way plane ticket to East Africa and was like, you know what? I don't know what the big picture is. Like I don't have a grand strategic plan. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. All, all I'm doing is like, I'm going to go make friends and I'm going to go be in relationship and I'm just going to go learn. And my, in that moment, like my need and my desire to do this big thing that was going to change the world and have this big strategic plan became really, really, really small. And it was like, nope, go like literally your goal for the next season of life, go make a friend, go make one single meaningful relationship. And so that's what I did. So I showed up in Uganda and had no plan, just kind of a loser. <laughs> I mean, just like kind of aimlessly like wandering around. I did make friends, which was awesome. And that was the goal. And kind of through that process of just making friends and building communities, really long story short, I got connected with a really amazing organization that exists to create opportunity for some of really the most exceptional female scholars in Uganda that come from backgrounds of extreme poverty and um, takes them through a really rigorous, amazing kind of two-year leadership academy. And then these women go on to go to university and become leaders in their community. And I became friends, frankly, with these folks, and they just kind of became my community in Uganda. And through that just friendship and relationship, I kind of just got like folded into this conversation that they were having as an organization around this specific challenge that they were facing um, during this nine-month gap that that exists in the Ugandan system. So these women are graduating from high school. They've got all of this gusto and vision and excitement to continue on to university. And then for nine months, they go back home to their village because there's a nine month gap between high school and college. And so they go back home to their village and a couple things happen during that time. One, there's a lot of social isolation that happens of, um, you know, they might be the only woman in their entire village who's graduated from high school, let alone who has aspirations to go into college. They're facing really real pressures through the form of dowry and bride price and social pressure to just get married and to start having kids and to not continue their education. And then there's a financial challenge um, that a lot of them come from backgrounds and from communities where there's not a lot of economic opportunity for them. And so the idea that they would be able to save up enough money to then restart their education at the university level is really, really difficult. And so I tried a bunch of different things that didn't work and then ended up um, 
I say designing, but that sounds frankly a little fancy for what it was. I cobbled together a pair of these sandals that I, a version of these sandals that I had originally made when I was in college and uh, hired three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca to make these sandals and basically said, okay, here's the deal, ladies. If you make these sandals for the next nine months, I promise that you'll go to university in the fall. And they were like, okay. And I was like, okay. And I came back home to the U.S., and started slinging sandals with my journalism degree. Um, and so basically over the last 10 years, I've been growing that. We are now not just a sandal company. We are a women's lifestyle fashion brand. Um, and we've got products in all different kinds of categories. Um, we now don't just work in Uganda. We're in Ethiopia and Kenya and Peru and India and work with incredible artisan organizations that make beautiful women's lifestyle fashion brands that we sell actually through a network of female entrepreneurs here in the United States called Seiko Fellows. Uh, so these are women who are sharing the story. They are styling their friends. They're earning an income. And uh, we still partner with that same organization that I became friends with over 10 years ago now um, to do that work and to create kind of a, a launch pad for these really academically gifted female scholars. So um, to continue on to university and become leaders in their communities. So I want to go back to the power of going small and the power of making one single friend, because I do think that challenges the narrative that we believe that so many of us have believed over time about growth and change and creating, right? But before we go there, I wanna go back to that. Before we go there, I wanna know how you're dealing with COVID-19. How's Seiko doing? What are you doing to pivot? Like, give us a quick update. Ooh-wee. The last eight weeks have been, I mean, I just, I was joking with a friend. I was like, you know, when COVID hit, like, what was that, like nine or 10 years ago? Like, it just has felt <laughs> like a lifetime. Totally. The last eight weeks, um, I've never experienced such a concentrated, like, I feel like I have my PhD now in leading through crisis and leading a business through crisis, um, of pivoting, of evolving, of failing a lot within the midst of that. Um, but long story short, yeah, we, so my family and I, um, my husband and co-founder and our two little boys, we went on vacation mid-March and, you know, as founders, as entrepreneurs, it's very difficult to leave. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, what if something goes wrong, terribly wrong? And then you talk yourself up. You're like, we have a great team. The world's not going <laughs> to You know, like what could happen in the next four days? For sure. <laughs> like a day into our beach vacation and we're like, oh my gosh, like this COVID-19 thing, like it's, it's, it's here and it's going to have massive implications and vacation over. Um, and so we came home from our vacation and frankly, I'll be really honest with you, Jordan. It was bad. It was really bad. So we sell, we're like, a, we're not a luxury brand, but we're not low price point. We're like kind of a mid tier um, company. A lot of our product and a lot of our branding and marketing is focused around traveling and wanderlust and, you know, prepping women and equipping them to be chic and versatile travelers. Um, and so we came home from Uganda and our revenue, it was the most wild thing. Like I literally thought the internet was broken because our revenue just disappeared. It was just gone. It was literally gone. It was, it was like right when, um, everything in the U S you know, over that span of like four days where it's like the NBA gets pulled mm. and shelter in place talk starts happening. And the first massive wave of unemployment starts to happen. Yeah. And 
I have never been so scared in my whole life. We were just like, we're doing revenue that is far under what our burn rate is right now and far under what we were projecting to do right now. And we, we had no idea what the future was. And the thing about our business, when you, when you bake social impact into your business model, you have really big questions to start asking when the wheels start falling off, right? Where it's like, we have this entire team of folks. We have an entire company in Uganda. And I'm not saying, and I don't want to diminish the hardship that, that Americans are facing right now. But if we're being very honest and factual, like the, um, the implications for our team in Uganda are a lot different. Like there's no PPP. Yeah. Yeah. Unemployment checks that might come. Like there's no Mm. walking into an emergency room and getting treated regardless of, you know, whether or not you can pay cash for it right now. Um, like, our community that we've created, like we are the safety net. And if, if that safety net goes under, like the implications for that, it's just heavy. It's heavy and it's hard. And there were a lot of really late nights and really scary conversations and things that we were dealing with it as leaders. You like, you have to do, you know, it's not going to disappear. That's right. No, you have to deal with it and you have to deal with it quickly and you have to make really hard decisions fast. So long story short, Jordan, here's what we didn't know. What we didn't know is that our community of sellers, our Seiko fellows, were going to freaking rally. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is where you realize as a leader, like having an embedded purpose, isn't like a bonus and it's not a marketing, you know, slogan. Like when you have done the work not just in the emergency, but you've laid the foundation over the last however long you've been alive as a company. When ish hits the fan, um, your ability for your community, the, the, the ability for the community to rally around a common cause, it's, it went from being March was like the worst month of my life to April was probably one of the best because I feel like I mm-hmm. saw our community rise and rally in a way that literally could make me cry thinking about it. And not only did we not go under in 60 days, like we actually ended up hitting and beating a lot of our like pre-COVID projections, which for being in the fashion industry, awesome. like wild, right? Like 85% of our industries yeah. gone right now. And frankly, we had a mentor. We had a really trusted mentor who I still trust and I love him and he's a great guy. But a few days into this crisis, we've got like a 30 minute consult with him And he literally said these words to us. He's like, hey, Ben and Liz, like, I have to be really honest with you. Like 85% of companies in your industry aren't going to make this. They're not going to make it through this. And for a company of your size, I would put your likelihood of survival at about a 5%. And essentially said like, "Um, it's probably time for you guys, for the sake of your family, um, to start kind of thinking about what the next thing is. Um, (laughs) Wow. Wow. Such an intense thing to hear. Wow. Yeah. I went to bed that night, like really grappling with like, is this it? Like we've, we've given our lives and we've built this thing over the last 10 years. And is this it? Is this the end? Um, you know, I've had people ask me this question before, like, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know when to quit and when to give up? And I, the only thing that I feel like I can say is like, you listen to the still small voice. And I went to sleep that night. And there was no part of me that felt a sense of relief, that felt like maybe this is a way out, that felt like maybe someone just gave me permission to do the thing that I think is also right. 
it just welled up in me this like fire in my belly. And I was just like, Mm-mm. like not today, not today. Like we did not come this far to have a freaking virus, like take us out. Yes. And who told us that it's become kind of a joke in our community because I told our sellers about that and it just created this like rally cry so it's kind of a joke <laughs> hashtag not today Kurt is like legend in our company now so the guys <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, not I today. love that not how this is going to go down. And so to see our community rally behind that and to say like, we know the odds are against us, but like not today, this isn't how we're going to go out. And so really my husband, who's my co-founder and I, we just sat down and we were like, here's the thing that was awesome about our conversation with Kurt that I'm so grateful for. I could tell a story of like, he was a hater and it hurt my feelings. And like, he was trying to bring me down and like, no, that's not what happened. What happened is I had an incredible conversation with a really smart person who told me I was going to fail. So he was wrong. What he wasn't wrong about was that like things are changing forever. And like, this mm. is, yeah, that's right. Head in the sand, like you, if you want to survive, you take drastic measures to make sure that happens. So I'm like, mm. I'm so grateful for Kurt, right? Like, um, and so we were like, okay, if there's a 5% chance we make it through this, we're going out swinging, right? And so we really just sat down and we listed out like, what are our, what, what have we built over the last 10 years? What are our assets? Like, what are the things that given the world, not yesterday, but today, sheltering in place and people not traveling and uh, massive unemployment, what are the things about what we've built that are assets for this new climate that we're in? And then what are our liabilities? What are the things that we've built that we've put a lot of time and money and energy into that worked yesterday that might not work today? And I'd say long story short, but it's really probably long story long. <laughs> long story long, we sat down and we were like, our model, we were made for this. Like, are you kidding me? Our, our sales channel is work from home women who are earning an income, doing online events, creating online mm and online income, right? Like 85% of our revenue is generated through online events that women are hosting wow. at 8 p.m. once they've put their kids to bed. Like that's, yeah. right? Like you don't have to leave your house. You get to interact with other women and you get to earn an income. That's amazing. Mm. Community of women who are deeply connected to the purpose of this company and to the impact that we're making. That is like gold. We have a product line that might not be well suited for this current climate. You know, like, I don't know if I can sell the $250 versatile leather travel handbag when no one's traveling anywhere for what seems like a really long time. And so we no. kind of realized like model versus like product category um, and product offering. And so we just went to back to the table and we were like, everything nothing is, nothing is precious. There are no, there are no golden cows that we need to honor in this. Like what does her new life look like? Who, and by her, I mean our customer. And we just did this exercise in like deep empathy of just like, okay, mm. we're not even trying to solve the, we're not trying to come up with a solution right now. What we're trying to do is really deeply understand her problems. And here are her problems. Mm. Her problems are that, um, her husband just got laid off from his job. She's still working and she's the primary breadwinner in her family, but she's having to do that from home. And she's having to do that while she's helping facilitate like e-learning for her three kids. 
and she doesn't have an office space and she's not connected to her friends anymore because she's not going out, you know, every Monday night, um, to do her, you know, book club or whatever she was involved in that helped, you know, create a sense of community. So she's probably feeling really lonely and she's feeling isolated. And we just went deeper and deeper and deeper into like all of these problems that she was now facing in her life. And then we asked the question of how are we uniquely suited to, to help solve the, these problems. And we ended up creating a, uh, high-end artisanal fair trade coffee brand called Together Coffee because we realized that- um, Love it. Way to connect with her community, to have kind of a sacred ritual at home that's replacing maybe one of her sacred rituals that she used to do out and about, like going to get a great cup of coffee, right? And treating herself. And like, how do we recreate that experience for her at home? And it just so happens to be pretty awesome that Uganda is literally has one of the world's best climate for growing coffee that Ethiopia, our second um, producing country is literally the birthplace of coffee. It's like where it was um, discovered. It has just a, you know, mm. incredibly rich tradition. And um, in Ethiopia, the, the phrase that means, you know, to, to drink coffee actually literally translates to being together. There's just like so much history and tradition around, like you make a cup of coffee and you look each other in the eye and you share stories. And this idea that we're in this moment in culture where we may be apart from one another, but like, that doesn't mean we're alone. And how do we mm. use stuff in ritual, um, to bring people together. And so, um, Jordan in five weeks, we launched a new company. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And we launched a new product line. Awesome. Uh, and this was, th I'm talking to you real time. Our, this is not, it's been, wow been three weeks, but I can tell you um, that we sold more in day one than we anticipated to in month one, that we are um, really exploring what this opportunity means for us, for our sellers. We've been able to completely, like our team in Uganda um, has been sheltering in place since the beginning of COVID, and we've been able to pay them and give them access to all of their benefits and make sure that that safety net um, that we've come to create over the last 10 years is, is holding them up during a time of crisis where there might not be another net. And all of that um, is because of the pivot, because of the purpose that our community feels so deeply aligned with. Um, and it has been a wild ride. Well, number one, so, so happy for you, Liz, and your family. You know, I think great innovation and change occurs in the Valley for those who seek to find it, right? And I also think about your leadership in this time, right? Like John Gordon says, a connected team is a committed team and you clearly are leading a group of really connected people that believe deeply in the mission and are following you like crazy you know and um so i just i want to commend you on on your leadership in this journey but also your creativity and your innovation and it's a really good segue because your your sort of your whole story has been founded upon this notion that we have to step out and create change and uh, dare I use the word begin in, in a different way, right? And, and you have some interesting thoughts around what it looks like to begin and to create and to step out. And I think it's one of the things that makes you really unique is how you break down the mentality of stepping out and beginning. And so I want you to go there. Um, and as we go there, I, I want you to come back to this, this notion of going small, Liz, and you talked about the power of making one friend and the power of going really, really small. So could we just start there and could you just tell us a little bit about that notion? Yeah, so 
I wrote a book called Beginner's Pluck. And as you might guess from the title, you might not know what pluck means if you're listening, but it's means spirited and determined courage used in the noun form, not the verb form. And beginners is this notion of, you know, I was, I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years into my career and I am speaking and I'm running this company and I'm coaching and I'm doing all this stuff and I'm, I'm getting the same questions over and over again. And there are these questions in this spirit in which people are asking these questions, frankly, are just, it's so heavy. It's so heavy. Uh, around like, well, you clearly found your passion. How did you do that? Um, and, you know, you are such a big dreamer. Like, how do I big, you know, how do I dream really big? And what I started realizing is that so many of the narratives that we have in our current, like motivational, inspirational culture, self-help culture right now, not only are they not helpful, I actually think they're kind of harmful or at least they're not doing what we're hoping that they're doing. They're pushing people in the opposite direction. And instead of inspiring and, and motivating people, they're creating a lot of fear and anxiety and serious analysis paralysis. And I would say the like dream big mantra is largely contributing to that. And here's the thing I have to say is that no need for like 10 seconds. I'm a pretty big dreamer. Like I dream pretty big. I'm not a big dream hater. What I'm, what I'm hating on, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> is starting there with someone when they're already feeling frustrated, demoralized, broken, mm. lost, and just shouting yeah. it louder and louder. You know, it's like when someone, have you ever seen, I feel like when someone encounters someone that's, um, you know, that like, that speaks in an accent and instead of like they just start saying things louder and louder the same thing you know and it's like that's not yes. helping yep. <laughs> yelling at the person now I kind of feel like we're doing that that it's just like oh you're feeling like you can't dream big here's how here's here's how I'm gonna help you dream big <laughs> and so one of the things now I'm also a really big fan of like if I'm going to critique something in culture I need to I need to recreate it like I'm not just going to sit on the sidelines and be like stop saying that it's stupid and unhelpful I'm going to create a new line of thought a new narrative yeah things, new slogans like if I think it's more helpful it's on me to go out and figure that out and articulate it and actually like figure out the science back this up? Does this actually work? And so um, I just deeply believe that, that we have to give people the permission to start small if we ever want them to be dreaming big. Um, because people get mm. so overwhelmed. And I meet so many people who have these beautiful dreams that they don't know that by acting on this small, beautiful dream, that's actually going to create momentum. And that is going to lead them to the next thing that might be a little bit bigger. And that's going to give them a sense of competency and um, confidence to take a little bit bigger risk than they did yesterday. And then that's going to create this momentum and it's going to lead to this connection or this thought or this pivot or this idea. And that now all of a sudden they've got all this energy momentum around. And then literally, I think before they know it, they're like, oh, I'm doing the thing. I'm dreaming big. I'm in the big dreamers club and I didn't even know it. Right. But it all starts with that permission to dream small and then to actually freaking do the work. Like mm. horrify. I think this, this kind of, Oh, like I'm a big dreamer. I'm a, like, I'm a visionary. But if you're not somebody who actually acts on those big dreams, if you're not somebody who actually like holds yourself accountable, makes really important promises, does the thing, then like you're never going to create that momentum for yourself or for the world or for the impact that you want to create. Like a small dream that actually gets acted on is 
infinitely, I think more valuable than like a big dream that you sit and you pontificate and you let it take up your brain space for three years, never having actually done anything yes. closer to that. And so for the people that so are good. big dreams, this isn't really for them. That's like, you do you, you've created, you're in the momentum, you've got it down. Like, that's fine. This is for the people that are like, I'm feeling stuck. I'm feeling stuck. I'm feeling like I don't know how to dream. I'm feeling like my dreams aren't big enough um, and who feel really demoralized and kind of paralyzed by that. My hope for them is that they go like, it's okay. Just like start small. Just literally do the next right thing. I, I love that. And I want our listeners to catch that. Just the power of going incredibly small. And for you, it was literally the power of making one friend. I mean, that's where your journey started. And, uh, you know, Jim Quick says, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say everything that I've done over the last 10 years started small. I think for this mentality of um, beginner's pluck, it can be easy to think in the beginning, right? So for me, yes, it all started with making that huge dream of wanting to make an impact on a million women and girls and shrinking it as small as it would possibly go to like make one friend. But at every point along the way, it always starts with like thinking small um, and every good thing that we've ever done in our business and for our mission came out of the permission to do a small thing. And that actually becomes harder um, mm. further on in your career that you get. So in the beginning, and the reason that I wrote this book was because I realized that 10 years into my career, there were things that I did more naturally Dreaming small would be one of them um, that actually get more difficult the further on you get. So the more of an expert you become, the more eyes that you feel like are on you, the, the higher the stakes are, the more employees you have, the bigger your burn rate, the more intense your investors are, whatever, whatever that looks like for you, you have more to lose, right? And so these really natural ways that we come to the table as a beginner, we start to lose in our journey of becoming experts and masters, which is an awesome journey. And so part of what I tried to do is really create this kind of thought process and curriculum around getting back purposefully getting back to the beginning and in the midst of your expertise and ownership, owning your inner beginner and, and really kind of diving back into the cycle of learning and reminding people that a, a, a leader's job isn't to just achieve mastery and expertise. It's to achieve mastery and expertise. And then once you get there to go back to the beginning, take on the next challenge, figure out the next thing, like get to a place where you're like, oops, yep. I'm there. I'm out of my comfort zone again. I am, I am punching above my weight. I don't know what I'm doing because once we become experts, we get so of our egos. Oh, our egos get more and more fragile, frankly. Mm, and yes. We have to protect our image as like the leader who has it together, the expert, the master. Mm. And we don't want to be seen as beginners anymore. And so really like de-shaming the beginning and saying like, you can just own it. Like, you can own it and you can celebrate as a leader those moments in your story where you pushed yourself beyond your competency because that's actually you starting another cycle of learning instead of kind of like capping out in this kind of comfortable place of, of conscious competence, if you will. I love that. <clears throat> conscious competence. So you talk about the four stages of learning. For our listeners, this is going to be heavy note-taking. We're going to get practical and um, you, you told me uh, ahead of this conversation, Liz, you're like, I could talk for like an hour about each of these topics. And, and somehow we're going to skinny this. And so I know it's not fair because I know you have so much to share, uh, but we're going to get practical, heavy note taking, check this out uh, for our listeners. Uh, Liz, I want you to unpack, and this is big, 
as we think about this whole notion of, of, of stepping out and beginning again, I want you to unpack the four stages of learning for us because I think it all starts there. Could you unpack that for us? So there's four stages of learning and I did not make up the four stages of learning. If you Google this, you're going to find it on the internet, these four stages of learning. And what you're going to find are images of like a stair step that are going to show you the four stages of learning. So you start out in unconscious incompetence. This is kind of the like happy go lucky. You don't know what you don't know. Then you have the moment of awareness and you arrive into the state of conscious incompetence where you're like, I know enough to know. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm in over my head and I feel really nervous and I feel overwhelmed. And this stage of conscious incompetence is the most difficult on our egos. Um, and it's the most uncomfortable stage in the whole, in the whole process for us. But then you practice and you try a couple things and you learn and you grow and you enter into the stage of conscious competence where you're like, I can do this still take some work and effort, but I can do this. And then you keep practicing and you keep perfecting and you arrive to the state of unconscious competence, which is the state of like mastery or expertise where that thing is so easy that it kind of starts, it's natural and you don't really have to think about it. Um, the four stages are good and they make sense and they're true. What's wrong with how we teach about the four stages is this idea, again, that the goal of a leader um, is to just make it to the fourth stage and become a master or expertise. And so I love, and it has been so helpful for me to think about the four stages of learning actually as a cycle. And um, that when you reach that state of mastery or expertise, like your job as a leader is to do whatever it is that um, kind of forces you off the pedestal and like back into the cycle of learning. And it's really difficult because again, that stage of unconscious or excuse me, conscious incompetence is so hard on our egos that if we so are not true. people that are doing the self work to say like, do I care more about the thing um, that I'm creating or do I care about what people are going to think about the thing? Or, um, you know, so often when people are so afraid or they feel really embarrassed after they haven't met a goal or they failed at something, a question that I love to ask is like, do you feel more devastated about not meeting the goal or is what's ruling you right now your thoughts about what people that you think are watching you fail and not make that now think about you. And those are so two good. very different things because one is our true self and our passion and the impact that we want to make in the world and our desire for that. The other is our ego and is our communication mm. with how we need to be seen in the world. And your ego isn't bad. Okay. And I talk about this in the book that, that this kind of concept of like, everybody has an ego and it's kind of, it's natural and it's normal. And it's actually probably, it's a, it is a necessary psychological construct that you go through to figure out who you are and how people see you and how you're viewed in the world. It's not a bad thing unless your ego is driving the ship, unless it's making all of the decisions. And so as leaders, like our work isn't just outward. Like a lot of our work is just doing the work in ourselves um, to, just mature our sense of ego and to get to a place where we can see like, am I being ruled by the thing that I deeply want and desire and want to see come to fruition? Or am I being ruled by my fear of what other people are going to think about that? So good. And you talk about the difference between being critical and being curious. Unpack that for us if you would. So when I kind of talk about channeling your inner beginner and getting back to a level of comfortability with being in that place of, um, conscious incompetence. One of the things that has been become most clear to me and the leaders that I admire the most are they're 
the most curious people. And I see curiosity as something, um, do you have kids, Jordan? We do three. Yes. Yeah. Kids. So, you know, the kids literally, they just come out of the womb curious, right? <laughs> so as true. Yeah. they are developing, their ego actually hasn't been fully established yet. So they have a sense of total freedom to ask questions without shame, right? Where it's just, yes. why? Well, why does that happen? But why? But what happens next? And there's no shame around it. There's no ego. And so their ability to learn, their learning curve is so much steeper and faster because they're not preoccupied with their ego. But over time, we mm. move be curious um, for two reasons. One, because our, our ego starts to, to take over and we don't want to be seen as somebody who doesn't know the answer to that. And two, because over the course of our life, we start to build a set of beliefs and we start to have um, this construct of like sunk cost, right? That is, um, we talk about sunk cost as a business term, right? Like business one-on-one, sunk cost. You already spent money on that thing. And even if you go in a different direction, yes. you lost. It is a business construct. It's also an incredibly powerful psychological construct because the, the longer you get and the more life you live believing one certain thing, the more painful it is to stay curious and to maybe change and grow. Because like, do you have to look at your yesterday self and say, maybe she was wrong? Like maybe that wasn't the full story. And so we have a lot of forces that keep us from just staying curious. And I would argue that the opposite of curiosity is just, it's, it's criticism. And that um, we, instead of staying curious and asking questions, we either kind of dip into what I would call external criticism, where, is some, where someone's like, they're just criticizing everybody else, right? Like the government's not doing their job and society is this, and my boss is that, and my wife is this, and this is <laughs> And, you know, COVID-19 and it's just, it's all external and it, and it really, um, allows you to evade responsibility if you can just critique other people and other entities and how they're not doing their job. The other type of criticism would be internal criticism. And so that's when you have a moment where you realize that you're incompetent. So you have a moment of conscious incompetence and, and you turn that criticism inward of like, I'm not good enough. I'm an idiot. I should have known how to do that, done that. Um, I said the wrong thing. I'm an, I'm never going to get anywhere because I just suck and I'm not good at anything. And that is obviously incredibly not productive and is going to lead you to paralysis in more of kind of this like pity party of shame thing that's going to happen. Mm. And I believe that the antidote to being a critical person in a negative way is to just be a curious person, right? And so when you have this moment of conscious incompetence, when you have a moment of fracture within a relationship, when a project fails and it didn't go the way that you thought it was going to, instead of blaming your team for being idiots or, you know, whatever it is, or blaming yourself for like not, you know, being a good leader, literally just leaning in and just asking questions and, and, and saying, okay, what can I do to get a better understanding of why that didn't go well, right? So you have a conflict with a coworker or with your spouse. And instead of getting critical of them or of yourself, just stepping back and saying like, I wonder how I can get a fuller picture of the situation. I wonder what's actually going on right now because it doesn't seem like the thing that we're fighting about is the actual thing. I wonder what happened earlier in her day that is causing, um, is, is causing this thing that happened in the past to get brought into this thing today. Like, what is that connection? How can I explore that? I wonder what I did throughout the day to contribute to this sense of, you know, irritation or frustration or whatever it is. And honestly, curiosity is just so fun. 
It's so interesting that Mm. it can almost like distract you from the like compulsion to just point your finger and to be critical. And not only is it fun, it's actually going to lead you um, towards ultimately solving problems faster, coming up with more relevant solutions. I mean, the statistics or the, the, the science shows that, so you've got IQ, which is, you know, your intelligent quotient. It's very difficult to change your IQ sucks, but it's kind of like you get what you get. Um, And then there's CQ. There's your curiosity quotient. And what the science tells us is that CQ is just as, if not more important than IQ in helping you achieve long-term successful outcomes. Because people with a high CQ, they're able to navigate ambiguity a lot more. They have a lot less defensive and aggressive and aggressive reactions to, um, to conflict or to failure. Um, it allows them to make more creative connections. And all of these are incredibly helpful in being successful, right? And here's the amazing thing. You can change your CQ. Like you have complete and total control over your curiosity quotient. Like curiosity is actually a muscle that you can just say like, I'm going to dominate and I'm going to be the most curious person. And you like actually have (laughs) to go out and do that. And to me, that is incredibly energizing and inspiring to be like, my get what you get. Like CQ on. I love that. You know, we always challenge young entrepreneurs and salespeople to break the record for questions asked in a first year. You know, it's like, could you be that person that just asks more questions than everybody else? And feedback is the breakfast of champions, right? I love that quote. And I love how you unpack the paradox of education, which is the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know. And that just shows up, Liz, and how you operate, how you think, Um, and that's so much of who you are. My final question for you, and I wish I could ask you 10 more, but I know we don't have, you know, all day together. And this is really for our listeners, because I think I know how you'll answer this question, having heard you speak many times. And and, and I love how you unpack this, but we have a lot of people listening who maybe want to go to the next level. Uh, they want to start something new, right? They're, they're in a, uh, leadership continuum and they're thinking like, man, I want to step out. What did you say to somebody that's trying to channel the inner beginner? My greatest hope is that I inspire people to just towards a sense of freedom, like towards a sense of freedom that um, results in them being a little pluckier, like a little bit more willing to take risk, frankly, um, more willing to deal with their own ego. And also to remind people, like one of the things I love to say to people, which sounds harsh, but it's true, is like, no one is thinking about you as much as you think they are. (laughs) You think that we're really insecure. That, that is a really interesting, like, Oh, I'm just like really insecure. I'm afraid of feeling. I'm afraid of what people are going to think. Your problem actually isn't insecurity. Your problem (laughs) is you have an overinflated sense of ego because that fear actually rests on the assumption that you've got a whole arena of people that are just watching, you know, popping popcorn and watching and seeing like, what's Jordan going to do next? Is Jordan (laughs) successful? What's Jordan's revenue going to be? Like, how's Jordan going to react? And it's just like, no, like, sorry, most people like their worlds are not revolving around you and you're like, and in, in a really great way, because it's just like, so why are you wasting time being so preoccupied with that? Like, this is your one as Mary Oliver would say, like wild and precious life. So do the thing that you were created to do. Like sing the song that is inside of you, bring your magic to the table, create the impact that you were created to make in the world. Because by the way, like that's it. 
that's our only shot. Like only you can do it. And not by the way, because you're above average or super smart or talented or gifted, just because like, I just deeply believe that each of us were created to bring a really unique, um, impact to the world. And if, if you miss out on that, like we miss out on that. Like if you're too afraid, like we don't get to benefit from the magic that you're here to create. And I don't want to live in that world. Like I want to live in a world where we're like all coming to the table saying like what I have to offer matters. And I have the freedom to explore and to mess, to pluck up, if you will, uh, to make some mistakes along the way and then to pivot and to iterate. And, um, like, I'm not supposed to have it figured out. I'm a freaking beginner. You know, I took my three and a half year old son skiing for the first time a couple months ago and it's actually a pretty confident child. And so he doesn't like spiral into like self-doubt a lot. So it was really unique to me to hear him say after his first run, I mean, he's three and a half and he was falling all over the place and he was like, got really frustrated. And he was like, mom, I'm not good at this. And my instinct as his parent is to say what? Like, nobody, you're awesome. You're a rock star. You're doing great, right? Because I think that to be an encouraging mother, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? But I didn't. I caught myself. And instead of telling him he was doing awesome, because he wasn't, he was literally just like falling down the mountain. Like nothing like athletically impressive about that. I just looked at him. I said, buddy, you're not supposed to be good yet. This is your first run. Like the point of this run is to just get to the bottom and like to be bad and have fun with it and then get back up and get to the top and maybe get a little bit better. But we live in this culture where we're like perpetuating this like false sense of affirmation because we think that that's what people need to be encouraged. And what people actually need is to say, it's okay to suck at first. You're supposed to suck because you're a beginner. And then you'll get a little bit better and then you'll get a little bit better. But like, what world do we live in that you think you should just like show up and be an all-star? Like, no, that's not how the world works. But we have to have more people that are willing to share their failures, that are willing to share their stories, um, that are willing to kind of go beyond the like, um, I don't know, inspirational guru, like look at me and how special I am um, to really inspire people to say like, if it feels scary and if you feel like you're not very good at it, like, congratulations, you're probably doing something pretty interesting. I just think about what you shared and, you know, we have these mic drop moments in conversations and that was one of those just like mic drop moments, you know, and um, John Maxwell so uh, eloquently articulates the gift being bigger than us. You know, our gifts are bigger than us, right? They're not meant to be used. Your gifts were not meant for Liz Bohannon to be great. And I, I just want to commend you, Liz, that you're in tune with that. You're in touch with that. I think so much of the reason that you've had the impact that you've had is because I think you understand the fact that your gift is bigger than you and, um, and you're using it on, on things that matter and you're impacting people in a really real way. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to be who you are, to be the person that God made you to be um, because man, you're creating real change. And I, I'm just thinking like, we have so many notes. We recorded the podcast. So I'll listen to this another 10 times just to get all the golden nuggets. And I know that our listeners are better off from having heard you and spent time with you today. So from the bottom of my heart, I just wanna say thank you for spending your very precious time with us. And uh, we're wishing you the very best. We're gonna be following you. Um, I, I'd recommend everybody check out the book, Beginner's Pluck. If you've not done that yet, please follow Liz on social media. Liz, you're such an awesome follow. Um, so authentic. You're just willing to share kind of all different parts of your life. And I love your authentic approach to, you know, how you do content and share your journey. So 
We're blessed to have you. Thank you for being you. Thanks for the gift that you are to this world. And thanks for joining the Montgomery Companies Podcast. Thanks so much, Jordan. Hey, y'all. It's been a treat hanging out with you and our guest, Liz Bohannon. Thank you for listening to Montgomery Companies Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our channel. Check out the description, and we'll be with you again soon with another great guest and more great content. Thank you.